The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Well, I think this is the first time in almost two years of doing this podcast that it's taken two weeks to get a new episode out and I have COVID to blame for it. I wonder if you'll be able to tell uh, which segments tonight I recorded before COVID and which ones like this one right now I recorded on the tail end of it. But um, as people will know, I've had a sort of argument with myself, it has turned out to really just be with myself, about how it is that we can make poetry a part of people's lives again, or as important as it once was. And I've always tried to use this or that example of what poets should maybe try and do. But the person who is always staring you in the face, at least in in America, in American poetry, when I tried to think about these things... Uh, perhaps for too long. Um, It isn't even Walt Whitman. It's Emily Dickinson. I think I've been circling around her for quite a while now, trying to figure out what to say about her, what to say about someone who was, what you might say, misunderstood and largely unpublished in her lifetime, and since then has become... uh, perhaps our greatest poet alongside Whitman. And we have to wonder how that is, what, what, the, uh, what, what has happened to our culture as far back as the Civil War that makes someone like Emily Dickinson appear to be so strange in her lifetime. And yet nowadays, in 2022, the things she says seem to make perfect sense. And to compare her to someone like Shakespeare, who... Uh, appeared as he was, um, whose reputation, you might say, hasn't changed very much in all that time. He was respected and revered in his life, and that only uh, grew and grew, albeit with some uh, changes here and there. But I thought a good way to, to get into Emily Dickinson would be with a biography of her. And you realize that with the, again, like Shakespeare, I suppose, Uh, With the dearth of information that we have about her life, you can either say, well, I don't really care about her life. It's enough to know that she wrote all of her poems in this room in, uh, in Amherst, Massachusetts. That's enough for me. Or you can just catalog all the flowers that she mentions in her poems and try to get a sense of her that way. The other way seems to be, and I don't begrudge anyone doing this, uh, writing or reading these books, 
But uh, the other way to do it is to write something like an 800-page biography about her. I think the, the strangest instance of this when I was preparing just to find a book about her, about Emily Dickinson, was reading about a two-volume biography of her that was published in the 1970s, where Emily Dickinson isn't even born until the second volume. And that seems to be a bit much for me. Maybe I would have gotten into that when I was 22. Uh, but at 42, uh, no. Um, and I was wondering, where could I look to find a basic, good, short, um, and uh, meaningful life of her? And I think that I did find it. It is a book called White Heat, The Friendship of Emily Dickinson, and Thomas Wentworth Higginson by Brenda Wineapple. Just to give us a reminder here, Emily Dickinson lived from 1830 to 1886. Thomas Wentworth Higginson from 1823 to 1911. So he was born earlier than her and he lived much longer than she did. And for those who don't know, Higginson was a very good example of a popular writer of the time. He had books come out collections of his essays, and he was published in The Atlantic and other publications of the time. He was someone who could make a living writing. Um, and Emily Dickinson, of course, was not. Uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson was, a, was sort of an early radical type, uh, a feminist, and uh, an anti-slavery man who went so far as to join a, uh, a uh, protest that got violent to try to keep an escaped slave, I believe in Boston, from being sent back south. And he later, uh, around the time that he began corresponding with Emily Dickinson, he became a, uh, I believe it's a general, isn't it, or a colonel, a colonel uh, in the Civil War uh, heading a regiment of black troops. And this was uh, before the famous 54th Massachusetts did so. And all this time, uh, he is corresponding with Emily Dickinson. And this really is a special book because it gives equal space to their early lives and then equal space to their later lives as well. It really is a book about friendship, not romance. Uh, Brenda Wineapple suggests throughout the book that maybe there is some sexual tension going on between the two. But uh, it's important to say that for both of them, um, if there was sexual tension, it could not be uh, fulfilled. And so it really is the story of a friendship. And I think that's a, a special thing to see these days. And so uh, what we'll hear is just bits and pieces of Brenda Wineapple's book, uh, starting from the beginning and going all the way until the end. And I think this is a good way of looking at Dickinson's life and just taking a peek here and there, not assuming that we can even contain her life in 800 pages, but to just see bits and pieces of her life, I suppose, the way we see her poems. Um, sometimes all I read is a sentence or three or four lines from a single page in this book, and that feels right. Um, if we're getting into Dickinson, it will be in small bursts and small revelations. But when you take the best of this book, uh, 
the best of what Thomas Wentworth Higginson and Emily Dickinson had to say to each other, and the admissions that Thomas Wentworth Higginson had as to how good of a writer he might have actually been when he's being shown every week or month or so, this astonishing poet who wants no fame at all. And when we confront the things they said to each other, um, I don't think it's uh, such a stretch to say that um, their entire friendship is a revelation. And it says something just as much about, uh, as I've said, how Homer takes out the garbage, how poets and creative people live their lives, as it does uh, talking about approaching the strange, uh, amazing uh, genius of Emily Dickinson, of seeing her not just as the uh, strange recluse up in the window, which is kind of an unfortunate way to see her, but seeing her as a human being and someone who had this close friendship with this man who ended up uh, being among the earliest editors and publishers of her poetry in book form after she died. Um, I apologize if I've gone on a little long with this introduction. Uh, perhaps it's COVID brain. And I hope uh, I don't sound too terrible, but I wanted to get a new episode out. And here comes a bit of me talking from two or three weeks ago when I did not have COVID. Here we go. From the age of nine until the age of 16, Emily Dickinson attended Amherst Academy. Her attendance was sporadic. Coughs, influenza, or, quote, general debility often kept her at home. One teacher remembered the girl as slight and diffident, but intelligent. Her compositions were strikingly original, he reminisced, and in both thought and style seemed beyond her years and always attracted much attention in the school, and, I am afraid, excited not a little envy. Operating in theological concert with the college, the academy offered first-rate teaching, and, despite its pietism, a humanistic smorgasbord of courses. Foreign languages, geology, botany, history, natural philosophy, grammar, arithmetic, music, even gymnastic exercises. Regardless, religion underlay it all. Instructors shall be, quote, firmly established in the faith of the Christian religion, parents were told, the doctrines and duties of which they shall inculcate as well by example as precept, end quote. We have a very fine school, Emily Bragg, to Abiyya Root, no longer at the academy. On the surface, she appears a typical teenager, roguish, affectionate, energetically devoted to her circle, and good-looking, or at least self-conscious about her looks. And she jokes, I am growing handsome very fast indeed. I shall be the belle of Amherst when I reach my seventeenth year. When Thomas Wentworth Higginson requested a picture of her, she said that she had none, and went on to describe herself 
rather seductively as, quote, small, like the wren, and my hair is bold, like the chestnut burr, and my eyes, like the sherry in the glass that the guest leaves. You can imagine Emily Dickinson texting these days and replying with that when some uh, guy asks for her picture. Actually, there is one known image of her, a daguerreotype taken around this time. She is young, seated, solemn, and secretive. This is the famous picture that you can find pretty much everywhere. Just do a Google image search, image search for Emily Dickinson. Uh, she is young, seated, solemn, and secretive. She faces front, unafraid, her eyes wide and clear, her lips slightly parted, her hair drawn back. She neither smiles nor frowns. She waits. She looks. And except for that expectant glance, she seems a creature of the stolid bourgeois world. Her dress is dark and well-made, with dropped shoulders and tucks about the waist. She wears a ribbon around her neck, clasped with a small brooch. Otherwise, she is unadorned, except for the book near her elbow and the flowers in her hand, a symbol of her beloved herbarium. The herbarium was a green album containing 424 specimens of dried plants and flowers, and finished by her when she was about 14 years old, her passion for botany as intense as Thomas Wentworth Higginson's was. Perhaps we should consider this her first book, even though keeping a herbarium was the pastime of many a schoolgirl or New England dame. But how to separate with Emily Dickinson, how to separate the typical from the singular. And further down the page, chatty, affectionate, and hyperbolic, she was also competitive. In later years, she was said to confide to a visitor that, on hearing Rubinstein play in Boston, she had abandoned her piano completely. And I suppose she wouldn't, uh, wouldn't mind hearing that there are probably many people out there who on first reading her poetry, abandoned writing poetry completely. Uh, this story may too be apocryphal, but as her father's daughter, she judged herself harshly, it seems. And despite her self-assurance, did in fact ask Wentworth Higginson if her verse was alive when she clearly suspected, clearly knew, was clearly quite certain that it was. At the Mount Holyoke Seminary in South Hadley in the fall of 1847, she was frantic about her initial exams, which she handily passed, and many did not. And despite the victory, she soon doubled over with homesickness, crying, quote, Home was near, home was always dear to me, and dear still the friends around it, but never did it seem so dear as now, end quote. Perhaps competition produced too much anxiety. Yet Emily Dickinson could hold her own. And she did, when assailed by the proselytizers, clucking over her spiritual health. She told her friend Abia, there is a great deal of religious interest here, and many are flocking to the Ark of Safety. I have not yet given up to the claims of Christ, but trust I am not entirely thoughtless on so important and serious a subject. Founded by Mary Lyon, Mount Holyoke was conceived by her as a place to save the spotted souls of young girls. 
an intelligent woman, formidably devout, Lyon intended not just to educate her students, but to prevail on them to embrace their savior and to appreciate, especially the truculent ones, their awful sinfulness. Once they accepted their savior with love, they too would save other impenitents from perdition. And to that end, Miss Lyon held meetings, private and public, lots of them, meetings for the converted, meetings for those who hoped for conversion, meetings for the unconverted. According to Vinnie, Emily Dickinson's sister, there were real ogres at South Hadley then. Emily Dickinson's roommate was her cousin, one of the, quote, established Christians, not so Emily. A tale from these days, credible and certainly suggestive of how others viewed her, was later recounted by another cousin. Emily said that when Miss Lyon asked all students who wanted to be a Christian to stand, she, Emily Dickinson, sta sat stock still. They thought it queer I didn't rise, she quipped. I thought a lie would be queerer. But that was after the fact. As she said uh, again to her friend Abia Root, I have neglected the one thing needful when all were obtaining it, and I may never, never again, pass through such a season as was granted us last winter. Again, she had resisted, completing the school year as a no-hoper, a quote, no-hoper, one with no hope of conversion. Then again, there was another piece of needful comfort, where she could be herself, where grapes grew purple and peaches fat and pink, where the autumn smelled of sweet wet leaves and rich brown bread freshly baked came smoking onto the table, where the hay scented the meadow and cherry trees blossomed in the spring. Home, she would write, is the definition of God. That's worth repeating. We know what that she ended up at home. Home is the definition of God. So you have in her schooling, in a way, uh, something that seems perhaps slightly liberating. You can choose to accept Christ and the church. You have the choice to do it. It shouldn't be foisted upon you. But it's clear that you were expected to. And you can only imagine the resolve of a young woman being able to do what Emily did, uh, refusing to fall in line just because everybody else was doing it. She was allowed to return home and the rest is history, or since that history depends on historical record, it is speculation. During her first year at Holyoke, her father determined, for reasons unknown to us, that there would be no second year, and if Dickinson went back to boarding school, which she thought she might, it would have to be somewhere else. There was nowhere else. In the summer of 1848, she was 17, impassioned, smart, and increasingly strange. For years, she had outwardly fulfilled all the ritual functions of girlhood. She sewed, she learned to bake. Her mother had a reputation for custards and crullers. She practiced the piano, went to parties, entertained the family's guests, and exchanged breezy letters with friends. She attended lectures, sermons, and concerts, and she presumably walked out of the Shakespeare Club 
when its young men threatened to censor the bard's crudeness for the sake of the young ladies. In winter, she tapped the maple trees for sap. In summer, there were picnics. She gossiped, read German plays, and visited relatives in Worcester and Boston. Of all their social group, said Austin, her brother Austin, she was the one always sought for her brilliance, originality, and wit. But her friends were whispering. It wasn't just her willfulness at Holyoke, but her indifference to social duties, the sewing circle, for instance. Sewing society, Emily Dickinson said, sewing society has commenced again and held its first meeting last week. Now all the poor will be helped, the cold warm, the cold warmed, the warm cooled, the hungry fed, the thirsty attended to, the ragged clothed, and this suffering, tumble-down world be helped to its feet again. I don't attend, notwithstanding my approbation, which must puzzle the public exceedingly. I am already set down as one of those brands almost consumed, and my hard-heartedness gets me many prayers, she coolly concluded, her condescension laced with hostility and a modicum of guilt. She was firm, and firmly ensconced in her prodigious reading, Longfellow's Kavanagh, Emerson's Essays, Dickens, the beloved Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She seems to have had a great affection for Elizabeth Barrett Browning. The Bronte sisters, Shakespeare, Tennyson, George Herbert, Robert Burns, John Keats, popular novels. Soon her father's library would contain such items as Alicia Kent Kane's best-selling Arctic Explorations, the work of the historians Motley, George Bancroft, and Prescott, alongside all of Addison's writings and all of Washington Irving's, and the poetry of Byron and William Cowper. She read and used what she learned, inventive situations, whimsical and parodic, sometimes nonsensical, all bright and effervescent, spilled out of her early letters. Vain imaginations, as she jested, to lead astray foolish young women. They are flowers of speech. They both make and tell deliberate falsehoods. Avoid them as the snake. Yet she also complained of an excruciating melancholy that refused to let go. And she writes, Pain has an element of blank. This is one of her later poems. Pain has an element of blank. You cannot recollect when it begun or if there were a time when it was not. Let's repeat that. Pain has an element of blank. It cannot recollect when it begun, or if there were a time when it was not. If we in the 21st century admire Emily Dickinson for her staunch individualism and her cat-like ability, as Henry James said of Hawthorne, to see in the dark, we need also consider the cost of originality in a sleepy village where comings, goings, and the least sign of deviance were of public note. The least sign of deviance were of public note. She was full of courage, her brother Austin recalled, but always had a peculiar personal sensitiveness. The price of nonconformity was loneliness in 1848, as in uh, 2022, uh, the price of nonconformity was loneliness. 
and yet one could imagine, and yet one could manage nonconformity, and loneliness too, in certain ways. Despite, despite the pressures of convention, upper-class women were frequently permitted eccentricity. They might live alone, or with one another, or not marry, or achieve the acceptable status of a talented maiden sister or dotty old aunt. These women, Thomas Wentworth Higginson's Aunt Sorrow, uh, Emerson's Aunt Mary, were all moral touchstones who roamed without a pack. One cannot know to what extent Dickinson chose her nonconformity, or to what extent it chose her. But over time, her commitment to independence, to poetry, and to a handful of soulmates comes into clearer focus. Early on, there was one special person, the young man she called her, quote, first male friend, Benjamin Franklin Newton. They met in 1847, after he, at 25, had come to Amherst to study law in her father's office, for she considered his intellect, or, I'm sorry, had come to study law in her father's office. Emily was 16 and was likely awed as well as flattered by his interest, for she considered his intellect far surpassing her own. Evidently, she did not think many exceeded hers, of course not. And he taught her what to read, she said, and, quote, that sublimer lesson, a faith in things unseen, and in a life again nobler and much more blessed. Now, a great deal of Brenda Wineapple's book is uh, aphoristic. The pieces that I'll read here will just be a sentence or two or a remark from Higginson or Dickinson. And that's nice because that is sort of how Dickinson's poetry is as well. And very early in the book, she quotes uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson uh, speaking, I believe, 30 years on and saying the impression of a wholly new and original poetic genius was as distinct on my mind at the first reading of these four poems as it is now after 30 years of further knowledge. And with it came the problem never yet solved. What place ought to be assigned in literature to what is so remarkable yet so elusive of criticism? And a little further on, Brenda Wineapple says this, Poets unfix the world, banish our habits, dwell in possibilities of change and daring action. They make the world whole. They allow us to catch what we ordinarily miss. And as I believe Higginson says, what I would not give to know whether I really have that in me, which will make a poet, or whether I deceive myself and only possess a mediocre talent. I could spend a good time, good bit of time here, reading the parts of Wineapple's book that just deal with Higginson's biography, uh, but I will leave that to listeners to find for themselves. But it is a very sympathetic and I think a very rare thing to do, to spend your time with someone who 
uh, their entire life believed themselves to be a poet and a writer, but who every now and then, as Higginson just says in this remark, isn't quite sure, especially when they come up against somebody like Emerson or when they have a personal correspondence with someone like Dickinson. It's a very rare thing and kind of a nice thing to see the person who isn't a novice by any means, who isn't a bad writer by any means, but who also uh, isn't uh, in the stratosphere. They're someone who is being uh, published in their lifetime, who can make their living as a professional writer, but they somehow know in the back of all things. I'm not quite sure that I have what it takes to be remembered past my life. And um, those are some nice parts in this book as well. Let's see. Ah, yes. Um, just a, a quotation from one of Dickinson's poems, two lines. It says, the things that can, the things that never can come back are several. Childhood, some forms of hope, the dead. Now repeat that. The things that never can come back are several. Childhood, some forms of hope, the dead. And here she is, uh, Brenda Wineapple, talking about Dickinson's relationship with her brother, Austin. And I keep thinking of that Apple, uh, that series on Apple, uh, called uh, Dickinson, I believe. Uh, wildly anachronistic, but still a great little show. And I, I think of how they uh, made Emily Dickinson and her brother Austin's relationship. They sort of updated it as if it were a friendship out of the 90s. But it's still very well done, and it reminds me of this. Um, it says, close in age, just a year apart, and in temperament, Austin and Emily Dickinson considered themselves unlike everyone else, and particularly unlike their parents, those, quote, ancient people, as they laughingly called them, who, at least in the case of their father, they loved, obeyed, sidestepped, and indulged. And here's a little bit more about Austin. This is, this is after her brother has married a woman named Sue, who became Emily Dickinson's close friend, and they lived on the same, uh, what you might say, the same property, but just in a separate house, and also the assumption by some that, um, and again in that Apple series, the assumption by some that Sue, that Austin's wife Sue and Emily Dickinson perhaps were romantic partners. Not entirely sure about that. But this is what uh, this is what Brenda Wineapple says. Emily might tiptoe across the grass to visit Austin and Sue at the Evergreens, but if a guest should pull the bell, she would run back. And she writes, Emily Dickinson writes, in such a porcelain life, one likes to be sure that all is well, lest one stumble upon one's hopes in a pile of broken crockery. With Mrs. Dickinson, that is, Emily Dickinson's mother, incapacitated, the other sister, the other daughter, Vinnie, assumed her role, offering Emily the protection that she needed more than ever to assume her role as a recluse. I would like more sisters, she sighed, when Vinnie left to tend an ailing aunt, that the taking out of one might not leave such a stillness. So she was attached to her sister Vinnie. 
To Vinny, Emily's withdrawal from the world was nothing special and implied nothing that was morbid. Emily simply got back in the habit of staying home, Vinny later explained, quote, and finding the life with her books and nature so congenial and continued to live it, always seeing her chosen friends and doing her part for the happiness of others. Perhaps Vinny also suspected that if her sister was becoming less interested in setting foot past the front gate, she was exploring recesses of feeling, thought, and imagination, what Dickinson later called a, quote, route of evanescence, that made contact with the humdrum world superfluous and probably also difficult. Emily told Abaya Root and Jane Humphrey that she was undertaking, quote, strange things, bold things, end quote, poems probably, and, like the exceptional women of her time, mainly but not always poets, such as Elizabeth Whittier, Christina Rossetti, the Bronte sisters, Margaret Fuller, she was choosing her own society and then shutting the door. That door, in fact, appears over and over in her poetry as an image of protection, of solitude, of exits and entrances, and two lines from, or three lines from her, uh, three excerpts from poems, The Heart Has Many Doors and a Long Dickinson Dash, and Doom is the House Without the Door and a Dash. And so we must part, you there, I here, with just the door ajar. And this is a nice thing, too, a nice quotation from a letter to a friend where Dickinson is talking about just how attached she is not just to words, but to the shapes of words and the shapes of letters on a page. She says uh, to a friend, We used to think when I was an unsifted girl and you were so scholarly, that words were cheap and weak. Now I don't know anything. Now I don't know of anything so mighty as words. Sometimes I write one and look at his outlines till he glows as no sapphire. Now that is someone uh, who is attached to words and to letters. Sometimes I write one and look at his outlines till he glows as no sapphire does. And advice from Emily Dickinson's is also from one of her poems. If your nerve deny you, go above your nerve. If your nerve deny you, go above your nerve. And she also says, uh, It is finished can never be said of us. A self-conscious poet never satisfied with the work at hand. It is finished, she would say, can never be said of us. And here just talking about how the poems are made, how her poems are made, uh, Brenda Wineapple says, she employs the common folk measure of Protestant hymns, writing in six and eight syllable lines in order to unbalance it. No full stops at the end of a stanza, for instance. A miniaturist, Emily Dickinson, composes poems in brief, most of which fit on a single page. She loves shortcuts. She manages and invents an economic phrase to express the inexpressible, raiding the unspeakable, 
cutting to the quick of emotion, all emotion, and dissecting it with such speed, we wonder how she can possibly know what it is that she knows. And on the next page, it simply says uh, that her poems are expressed in a language compounded of colloquialism and religious reference, aphorism and plaint, statement and plea, direct, dense, often excruciating. I like that, often excruciating. Her poetry lies close to the reader and one step beyond, fervently waiting. You think of uh, the Whitman line where he says his real self is already far off ahead and looking back and uh, sort of joking and waiting for Whitman to catch up. And I remember that remark of Harold Bloom somewhere, probably in the Western canon, I think, where he says it should be impossible to put into 40 words or so what Emily Dickinson is able to put into 40 words in just a few lines. Um, let's see. 101. There we are. Um, yes. Uh, and you reach about the middle or so of the book, or about page 100 of Brenda Wineapple's book, and she says this. Emily Dickinson stops my narrative. For as the woman in white, the savant and reclusive, shorn of context, place, and reference, she seems to exist outside of time, untouched by it. And that is unnerving. No wonder we make up stories about her, about her lovers, if any, or how many or why she turned her back on ordinary life. And when she knew of the enormity of her own gift, because of course she knew, and how she combined words in ways that we never imagined and wished that we could. And when we turn to her poems, we find that they, too, like her life, stop the narrative. Lyric outbursts, they rather, they tell no tales about who did what to whom in the habitable world. Rather, they whisper their wisdom from deep, very deep, within ourselves. And perhaps these poems plunge down so far, perhaps they unsettle us so, because Emily Dickinson writes of experiences that we, who live in time, can barely name. That's worth repeating. And perhaps these poems plunge down so far. Perhaps they unsettle us so, or perhaps they settle us. Perhaps they speak to us so deeply, because perhaps they seem so strange, but at the same time something that we feel like we need to reach out for. Because Emily Dickinson writes of experiences that we, who live in time, can barely name ourselves. In a letter that Higginson remembered receiving in the summer of 1862, Emily Dickinson explained warily what she was after. Even if, quote, you smile at me, I could not stop for that, she told him, because, she says, my business is circumference, capital M, capital B, capital C, my business is circumference. To Dickinson, circumference evidently meant both limits and the transgression of them. The soul selects its own society. The brain is wider than the sky. And Brenda Wineapple uh, quotes that wonderful, uh, that wonderful line that, that she attributes to St. Augustine, 
but I think is even older than that. Uh, it appears in a lot of the uh, hermetic and alchemical texts, and that is uh, the nature of God, or uh, that uh, God is an intelligible sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. And we are to imagine that going on in the upstairs room uh, where Emily Dickinson is. And actually, it's worth skipping ahead to Brenda Wineapple's description of that room. Let me see if I can find that. Actually, yeah, here we go. Uh, this is how she describes Emily Dickinson's room. It was a clean, well-lit bedroom in the southwest corner of the homestead. To the west, it faced the evergreens, that is where her brother Austin and his wife lived. And from a set of windows to the south, Dickinson could peer across rolling meadows, their color fading from yellow in fall to the glittering bone white of winter. And there was the light, and she quotes a Dickinson poem, which says, there's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons. Inside the room, a Franklin stove relieved the chill. Her small mahogany sleigh bed was covered with warm counterpane. Beyond it sat the bureau in which Lavinia, years later, would find her manuscripts, all sewn up in those fascicles, as they came to be called. And slipped into the southwest corner was the small cherry desk, only 17 and a half inches square. Let's go out and measure 17 and a half inches square and just be amazed that this was the space on which she conducted a vast correspondence and composed almost 1,800 poems. And quoting another poem again, Sweet hours have perished there. This is a timid room. But Brenda Wineapple concludes that no, <laughs> it was not a timid room. No more than five feet tall, she covered her small shoulders with a paisley wool shawl of auburn and orange. Her house dress contained several pockets. Supposedly, she kept a pencil and paper in one of them. And in coming years, though, she dressed only in shades of alabaster. And then down the bottom of the page, another quotation from one of her poems, or perhaps from one of her letters, she says, Nature is a haunted house. But art is a house that tries to be haunted. In other words, and this is something that Brenda Wineapple brings up many times, that uh, nature is the thing, Emily Dickinson believes, that is alive and that has uh, also has contact with death, with the haunting. Um, what artists are trying to do is to have that much life within them, artists and their art, trying to fill that much of their expression in their own lives with that much life that nature has. Uh, art is a house that tries, that really wants uh, to be haunted. Let's see what we have next here. Oh, Brenda Wineapple makes the remark, often for Emily Dickinson, death is the mother of beauty. And while we can think of no more different poets than Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman. You'll remember from my episodes on reading Whitman's death poetry that this was also the case for Walt Whitman. Let's see. I'll read one more 
little bit for this section. And it says, loss. We know the quest is futile, but nonetheless rake over Dickinson's life, hunting for the concrete experiences that might account for her obsession with loss, the idea that Dickinson is death-obsessed, particularly during her most prolific years. Had the birth of Sue and Austin's son Edward, Ned, in 1861, stolen Sue's attention? Had the imminent departure of the Reverend Charles Wadsworth for a ministerial post in San Francisco scalded the poet's heart? Is that why she told Higginson, much later, that his friendship had rescued her? Or was she thinking solely of her poems when she approached him, grateful that he responded as he did? Or was it the Civil War? Certainly the world outside the homestead was besieged by narrative. Each day villagers listened at the telegraph office for the ominous clicks and scanned the newspapers for names of the wounded and the dead. And Dickinson writes, Sorrow seems more general than it did, and not the estate of a few persons since the war began. And then, uh, and then she, uh, Brenda Wineapple quotes a poem called They Dropped Like Flakes, which was later published as a poem called The Battlefield. They dropped like flakes, they dropped like stars, like petals from a rose, when suddenly across the June a wind with fingers goes. They perished in the seamless grass, no eye could find the place. But God can summon every face on his, on his repealless list. I'm sorry for messing up that last line. God can summon up every face on his repealless list. Brenda Wineapple says, Men disappear into a vast indifference of, quote, seamless grass. Wonderful image, all the more striking, because grass typically reassures, but here it does not. Here it cannot, it does not. Fraser Stearns, the 21-year-old son of the Amherst College president, was killed at the Battle of New Bern in North Carolina in March 1862. He had murmured, My God, Dickinson said, and asked for water twice before he died. His big heart shot away by a mini-ball, she said. Nobody here could look on Fraser, she reported to her cousins, not even his father. The casket, drenched in spring flowers, was uncharacteristically closed, and her brother Austin was devastated, as Emily wrote to Samuel Bowles, and he says, quote, His brain keeps saying over, Fraser is killed, Fraser is killed, just as father told it to him. Two or three words of lead that dropped so deep, they keep weighing. Words of lead, this hour of lead, from one of her poems, this hour of lead, remember it if outlived, as freezing persons recollect the snow, first chill, then stupor, then the letting go. Is the letting go, Brenda Wineapple says, is the letting go resignation, a death-like capitulation to despair? In either case, as Hawthorne bleakly wrote in the July 1862 issue of The Atlantic, quote, there is no remoteness of life and thought, no hermetically sealed seclusion, except possibly that of the grave, into which the disturbing influences of this war do not penetrate, end quote. Yet Thomas Wentworth Higginson was counseling the long view in one of his Letters to a Young Contributor, published three months earlier, and just as the awful battle of Shiloh had left 20,000 casualties in its wake. And Higginson says, remember literature, and he says, General Wolfe 
on the eve of battle, said Gray's elegy in a country churchyard, and he says, Gentlemen, I would rather have written that poem than have taken Quebec. I wonder how many generals out there now would say the same thing. I would rather have written Elegy in a Country Churchyard than have taken Quebec. And uh, I mention, she mentions about 20 pages later that when Higginson uh, went to war, he carried a, a small book of Shakespeare's sonnets wherever he went. And here we come to a section where an ailment that Emily Dickinson has involving her eyes is assumed by some to be one of the reasons why she uh, escaped from uh, the world. And this is what Brenda Wineapple has to say about it. Uh, something was wrong with her eyes. She could not bear light. As she told her cousin, the snow light offends them and the house is bright. Reading was difficult, if not impossible. What I see not, I better see through faith, she reassured herself in one of her poems. My hazel eye has periods of shutting, but no lid has memory. The diagnosis for her condition seems to have been rheumatic irritatus, anterior uvatus, a disease that comes and goes and whose prognosis is good. An irritation of the iris, possibly congenital, that causes pain, soreness, light sensitivity, and blurred vision. The condition is often associated with diabetes, and in Dickinson's case, its onset and causes are unknown. During the course of her treatment, she stayed with Norcross cousins Louise and Francis in a boarding house at 86 Austin Street in Cambridgeport. She answered Higginson's letters, forwarded to her there, saying that her doctor would not let her go back to Amherst. Yet, I work in my prison and make guests for myself, she says. But the restless bustle of urban life, and her anxiety, her inactivity, her ailment, all of these things depressed her. Perhaps she could manage to write her poetry, though the physician had advised against sewing and reading. And she says, I wish to see you more than before I failed, she writes to Higginson, her language drastic and similar to the poem which says, I heard a fly buzz when I died, which was, which was possibly composed around this time. And it says, I heard a fly buzz when I died, and then the windows failed, and then I could not see to see. Unaware that Higginson had been injured in the war, she also did not know much about his recovery, she said, but word of it would excel her own. That was overstatement. Her eye trouble, Higginson's wound, even Nathaniel Hawthorne's sudden death, which she mentioned to Higginson, spelled the end of an era. She was cut off. And as one of her poems says, the only news I know she told him with bleak humor, 
is bulletins all day from immortality. Not until the end of November could she go home, long after the apples had ripened and wild geese heading south had darkened the sky. And yet with her eyes not fully healed, she had to return to Boston in the spring and summer of 1865, just at the time that the Savage War finally ended. Years later, she remembered her own private ordeal as, quote, a calamity, which no doubt it was. Writing to Joseph Lyman, she recalled that, quote, I had a woe, the only one that ever made me tremble. It was a shutting out of all the dearest ones of time, the strongest friends of the soul, which are, of course, books, B-O-O-K-S in all capital letters. The dearest ones of time, the strongest friends of the soul, books. The medical man said, Avanti books tormentors. He also said, down thoughts and plunge into her soul. He might as well have said, eyes be blind, heart be still. So I had eight weary months of Siberia. Imagine any of us out there who listens to this podcast being unable to read for eight months, let alone Emily Dickinson. Here and here is one of the one of the great lines. Um, they're still trying to figure out when they can meet, and I believe uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson invites her to Boston. And um, Emily Dickinson writes back to him and says later, uh, "I must omit Boston. Father prefers so." And then she also says, "I do not cross my father's ground." to any house or town. And, and at one point Higginson writes to her, it is hard for me to understand how you can live so alone with thoughts of such quality coming up in you. Again, that's, I think I have a real affection for Higginson because he sounds sometimes like me, he assumes that with these thoughts and with these poems, of course you want people to read these poems. Of course you want there to be people to hear these thoughts. Um, that has always been my assumption, uh, and that seems to have been Higginson's assumption, but it is not everyone's assumption. You should be able to have these thoughts. You should be able to write these poems and not really care too much if anyone ever reads them. But then we do come to real, really the heart of the book, uh, the moment that they do meet for the first time. Now remember, uh, Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson, an anti-slavery guy, I believe Emerson Thoreau says he's the only one of the uppity uh, Boston Brahmin types who was an anti-slavery type, who actually got into a mob, who actually got into a protest and got bloodied and injured people uh, to keep a runaway slave who made it north from being taken back again. Um, he became a uh, Civil War colonel. Um, I believe this book says that he had a black regiment. He was in charge of a black regiment before the famous 54th Massachusetts. He saw war. Uh, he knew sickness. He knew death. He knew all of these things uh, firsthand. But uh, just look at how his reaction is. Um, to meeting Emily Dickinson for the first time. I love this story. 
And this is on page 179 to 181 of Brenda Wineapple's book. She says, The long-anticipated meeting in the homestead parlor after eight years of correspondence and tantalizing bafflement, Emily Dickinson and Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson stood together in the same room. Forgive me if I am frightened, she apologized. I never see strangers and hardly know what to say. Nervous, she talked without stopping, and I believe that this account is cobbled together from letters that Higginson wrote to a few people after the events. Um, nervous, she talked without stopping. Occasionally she paused to ask him to speak and then started all over again. And he says, manner between Angie Tilton and Mr. Alcott, he noted, referring to the two gabbiest people he knew, but thoroughly ingenious and simple, which they are not, and saying many things which you would have thought foolish and wise. And later on, he listed some of her, op her pungent observations. She says, I find ecstasy in living. The mere sense of living is joy enough. How do most people live without any thoughts? Is it oblivion or absorption when things pass from our minds? And truth is such a rare thing, it is delightful to tell it. She told him more about her family. Her father read only on Sunday, quote, long and rigorous books, she added for emphasis. She made bread for her father because he liked only the bread she made, Higginson noted, quote, and says, people must have puddings, this very dreamily as if they were comets, so she makes them too. Doubtless she was ironic and hyperbolic. She claimed she had not known how to read a clock until she was the age of 15. And, quote, my father thought he had taught me, but I did not understand, and I was afraid to say I did not, and afraid to ask anyone else, lest he should know. Her mother was weak. This is after her, uh, her father has died. Her mother was weak, and Emily Dickinson says, I never had a mother. I suppose a mother is one to whom you hurry when you are troubled, end quote. And Brenda Wineapple says, Dickinson endured alone. Uh, they discussed literature. She said that she and her brother had hidden Longfellow's novel Kavanaugh under the piano, under the piano cover to outfox their strict father, who forbade reading it. A friend concealed other books in a bush by the door. Uh, and Brenda Wineapple makes the nice sentence here, to read was to defy with pleasure. Um, that is not the rebellious thing to do these days. People are not running around hiding books from their parents. Um, they discussed poetry, suggestively. Here was another form of transgression and transformation, erotic and inflammatory. And this, this is the, their meeting, what Higginson's notes afterwards, letters afterwards, this is where this line comes from of Emily Dickinson, where she told him, If I read a book, and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can ever warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only way to know it. Um, is there any other way? End quote. Poetry, again, as explosive force. Higginson must have felt the pull, the energy of her sexuality. He left her exhausted, but in the evening, 
walked back to the house. Afterward, hinting at the sexual tension and the release of the entire experience, he admitted he had never met anyone, quote, who drained my nerve power so much. Without touching her, she drew from me. And he concludes, I am glad not to live near her. I love that. I am glad not to live near her. This from a guy who has been through so much and seen so much. Emily Dickinson is the one uh, that does this to him. And he, he is glad not to live near this source of power, draining power. Uh, the remarkable encounter, Brenda Wineapple says, far exceeding his expectations was too much for him. He had flirted with the writer Helen Hunt. He had flirted with others, but he had always chosen the straight and narrow. Emily Dickinson demanded nothing short of full commitment. Irreducibly herself, without compromise, she took everything, drained the cup, was irresistible, and to Higginson she was far too dangerous. When he took his hat for the last time that day, he promised the poet he would come again sometime. Say, in a long time, she mischievously answered, that will be nearer. Some time is nothing. And as usual, she was right. A few pages on. There's the nice note from Brenda Wineapple where... Again, we, we, we think of uh, Higginson as someone who is the more polished and the more widely published and um, the more generally successful writer, a good example of the, success, the successful writer of his time. But Brenda Wineapple notes that at some point, likely he recognized how little she needed from him, even technically. And that had to have been a disquieting experience for him as well. That there was nothing that he could really teach her. And then again, that points to their friendship being uh, something else uh, altogether. It is not a master or a teacher and a student. It is uh, a deeper friendship. And let's see. And I believe, though, that he does go to see her again. This section here says, uh, How long are you going to stay? Dickinson had immediately asked, her voice barely audible. He couldn't stay long, but did provide other assurances, promising he would not forget her. And for weeks later, he sent New Year's greetings to tell her that he well remembered his recent trip to Amherst and, quote, especially the time spent with you, it seemed to give you some happiness, and I hope it did. Certainly, I enjoyed being with you. And Brenda Wineapple says, These are not the words of the condescending cavalier. Come to gape at the, quote, eccentric poetess. Each time, he says to her, each time we seem to come together as old and tried friends. And I certainly feel that I have known you long and well through the beautiful thoughts and the words you have sent me. I hope you will not cease to trust me and to turn to me, and I will try to speak the truth to you and with love. Because there is a great deal of uh, in this book about Higginson's wife, how she is sick and bedridden, and how he has friends with women, and his wife doesn't understand his attachment to this eccentric poetess, but it's in their letters where he allows himself to not 
uh, let Dickinson be spoken of in that way. Um, Here's Higginson uh, writing about his own limitations as a writer. He says, I have fineness, but some want of copiousness and fertility. I wish I could, without sacrificing polish, write with that exuberance and hearty zeal. And he says, my gentility is chronic. He, know he knows his own limitations. Um, and Brenda Wineapple says he evaluates himself candidly. He says, my gentility is chronic, uh, but what can I do? He is set in his ways. Let's see here. Here's a nice passage here. In Boston, in the fall of 1875, Higginson recited several poems that Dickinson had sent to him, along with his sister Louisa's to the assembled ladies of the Boston Women's Club, as they sat expectantly in a large parlor, their feet crossed over obeson carpets, their silence rising to the high ceilings. Loyal, he would not divulge Dickinson's identity, even though, as he acknowledged, her poems were, quote, as he acknowledged that her poems, quote, weird and strange power that excited much interest. He had also recited Dickinson's poems in Newport, his literary friends, arranged expectantly on the couches at Mrs. Dame's, shaded gas lamps warming the room with spectral brightness. Enthusiastic, big-hearted, brisk, and a little pushy, a friend named Helen Hunt Jackson was thrilled, and she writes to a friend, I have a little manuscript volume with a few of your verses in it, and I read them very often. You are a great poet, and it is a wrong to deny to the day you live in that you will not sing aloud. When you are what men call dead, you will be sorry that you were so stingy. Here, she wrote that to Emily Dickinson herself. When you are what men call dead, you will be sorry that you were so stingy. And you begin to see throughout the book that there are friends, uh, mutual friends of Higginson and Dickinson who know her identity and would really like her to publish in her lifetime. Um, again, that's someone who reminds me of myself. Um, uh, she should want to do this, but not everybody actually should. Much nearer the end of the book. I do like that we're picking sentences and paragraphs out here uh, because they have the length or so of a Dickinson poem. Uh, at one point she says to uh, to Higginson, emblem is immeasurable. That is why it is better than fulfillment, which can be drained. Fulfillment can be drained. Emblem and, and looking and longing and wishing and thinking, that is the thing that uh, cannot be drained. And I believe that's the same word that Higginson used. He felt drained in her presence. He felt drained in the fulfillment of meeting her. He, did, he does not seem to have ever felt drained in the experience of reading or corresponding with her. And here is Brenda Wineapple's description of Emily Dickinson's uh, funeral. The rest of uh, Brenda Wineapple's book, I guess the last 60 pages or so, is a wonderful description of how 
Higginson and uh, uh, family members of Emily Dickinson ended up first publishing her poems and uh, the, the family and personal politics that went into that and how they chose the poems, how they added titles to it. Um, I didn't feel like this was the space to read that history here, but it is wonderfully done for anyone who wants to find it. But this is her description of Emily Dickinson's um, her funeral. Uh, the honorary pallbearers, including the president of Amherst College, bore the small coffin from the library into the hall and then out the back door. But per Emily's express instructions, the men who worked for the Dickinsons over the years, and they give the names here, Stephen Sullivan, Pat Ward, Tom Kelly, Dennis Scannell, Dennis Cashman, Dan Winham, conveyed the casket high on its wooden bier through the Dickinson meadow to the cemetery. It was the same path through the meadow, thick with daisies and buttercups that Miss Emily herself must often have taken to visit her parents' graves. Convulsed in grief and draped in black, a hollow-eyed Mabel Todd Dickinson accompanied the small group to the cemetery, walking behind the family cortege. The air was iridescent, the white sun streaming in the mourners, who gathered around the open grave, which Sue had lined with a spate of flowers and green branches. It was never to be, it was a never-to-be-forgotten burial, commented a family friend, and seemed singularly fitting to the departed one. As the casket was lowered down and farther down, Mabel Todd took one last look. Emily Dickinson, she said, had gone back, quote, into a little deeper mystery than that she always lived in. Sue Dickinson composed an obituary for the Springfield Republican. Printed on May 18th, the day before the funeral, it addressed all the rumors flying around her sister-in-law. The rumors had flown around her sister-in-law for years. There was a great deal there was a great deal public about this private person, and Sue wanted to set the record straight. And she wrote, "Not disappointed with the world, not an invalid until within the past two years, not from any lack of sympathy, not because she was insufficient for any mental work or social career, her endowments being so exceptional, but the mesh of her soul, as Robert Browning calls the body, was too rare, and the sacred quiet of her own home proved the fit atmosphere for her worth and her work. And I'll read that, that last part again. Uh, it's not because she lacked in social graces, it wasn't because she was an invalid, etc., but it was because the mesh of her soul was too rare, and the sacred quiet of her own home proved the fit atmosphere for her worth and her work. And sometimes that is just the case. Uh, Emily's writing and conversation were incomparable, she went on to say. And she wrote, Like a magician, she caught the shadowy apparitions of her brain and tossed them in startlingly, picture startlingly picturesqueness to her friends, who, charmed with their simplicity and homeliness, as well as profundity, fretted that she had so easily made palpable 
the tantalizing fan- fancies forever eluding their bungling, fettered grasp. I'll repeat the thing I just read from the last paragraph again, because I think it is a key to not just me, but to this podcast and what I've been trying to say about privacy and the demands that the world pretends to make on us, the requirements that the world pretends uh, that we should all have, and that is to be public people, to make public pronouncements, to uh, show our allegiances to everything in a public way, otherwise we are letting the world down or whatever it is. Um, Some people do not belong in the public world. Some people do not need to ever leave their house, and that's fine. Some people uh, aren't social people. Some people uh, find it difficult to be heard or seen or looked at, and no amount of therapy or medicine or help um, is even necessary, and they should be left alone to live the private life that they have. Sometimes this isn't really even a problem. It's not an abnormality. Some people's mesh of soul are too rare, and the sacred of their own homes prove the fit atmosphere for their worth and their work, whatever it is. Some people are simply not other people's uh, business. We don't need to be Emily Dickinson to uh, be able to say that we have a private and a hidden life, and we don't need to justify it to anybody else. Uh, The very last thing that I'll read from this book um, comes from uh, the aftermath of her publication, of her being published, and let's see, what page is it on here? And I thought this is nice. This is in the year 1896. I think uh, her poems began to appear in 1890 or so, and... um, This is nice. Uh, A new volume, uh, a third series of poems, appeared in 1896, and one of the reviewers said, well, here we are. Uh, um, The reviewer says, her vogue has passed. Now such reputation as she has among minor lyricists is imperiled by the indiscretion of her executors, end quote. Uh, The assumption being uh, she's become a cliché, She's the lady in white, Uh, she's the recluse, she's probably back to the invalid thing, the person who can't uh, get out of the house. Her executors have published too many of her poems, and this third book is enough. Her vogue has passed, and we can all forget about Emily Dickinson. Um, I'm glad that we haven't forgotten about Emily Dickinson, and I hope I haven't flubbed too much here in uh, in my own condition here at the end of this book. Um, I hope this uh, encourages people to not just read Brenda Wineapple's book, uh, but to find other biographies, other documentaries about Emily Dickinson, and also just to go and read her again. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, 
You can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.